Hey everyone, James Labrie from Dream Theater, and you're listening to or watching the podcast Talking Into Infinity with JT and Brian. Enjoy this. These guys are extremely informative. I love their dialogue. I love their interpretation of the songs, who and what we are, what we were going after. They're very uh, accurate in their uh, interpretations and descriptions. And uh, just I just think this is a great show. And these guys are doing a, a stand-up stellar job. So once again, enjoy Talking Into Infinity with JT and Brian. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Talking Into Infinity, a Dream Theater podcast. We are live on Facebook, YouTube, TalkingIntoInfinity.com, and the CMSNetwork.com. We are live at those four locations every other Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can catch video replays of the show on the CMS Network or at our YouTube channel. If you are watching on YouTube, please do not forget to click those like and subscribe buttons so that you are notified every single time that we go live. And if you're looking for audio replays of the show, just Google Talking Into Infinity Podcast. Without further ado, let me bring on tonight's subject matter expert, Mr. Brian Hendrickson. Uh, Brian, I have a feeling this is an episode you've been waiting a long, long time for. You know those corporate meetings at work where it says SME? That's what you just referred to me as. I don't know if I'm a subject matter expert, but I am a ginormous Rush fan. And uh, yeah, this is going to be awesome, man. I haven't been on the show in a month. So first of <laughs> all, I want to say thank you so much to Adam Rushog from Here's What's Spinning. Great podcast uh, those guys do up there in Canada. And uh, awesome job on the scenes from a memory, man. That was very cool. I, I got to listen to basically three-fourths of it live. And then uh, I had to kind of concentrate on driving the rest of the way. But man, very cool. Like, I did not realize that that was literally his favorite album of all time. I I did not either. When he when he mentioned that, I was like, "Well, this that that's going to add some uh, skin to this game." So that was I, I loved what he did with the story. I thought that was really really cool that he was you know after every song, be like, "Okay, so here's what's going on in the story." Yeah, yeah, I like that because I'm too dumb to break down a lot of concept albums when there's that <laughs> stuff going on. Like, oh well, this is a flashback to this, but then that flashback to that, and especially an album like that where it's really kind of complex and and following the storyline and whatnot but yeah thank you so much adam and uh i'm gonna pimp his uh, podcast again because i was very lucky to be on uh last week we did a uh a kill switch engage song draft with him and his co-host kyle and that was awesome and that's coming up i think in a couple of weeks right now his current episode is uh trivium ranking their album so if you're a big trivium fan go check that out but uh yeah kind of a weird thing um we are going to go into moving pictures tonight um and Terry Brown actually is the producer, and he's the producer on a lot of Rush's uh, big albums. And I double-checked something because you started talking about this, and I wasn't clear on it. I guess he is was the vocals producer for Scenes from a Memory, from what I can gather. Uh, yeah, and he was also the voice of the hypnotherapist. So he did appear on there, which caused a lot of consternation between him and the band. As we discussed on the last episode, it got the whole uh, no thanks to Terry Brown right, right. <laughs> on the live one. Um, so before we get into this Rush record, though, I think we would be remiss 
if we didn't dive into a little bit of dream theater, dream theater ish news and talk about the fact that you and I both scored tickets to the Cleveland show of John Petrucci's solo tour. And we were lucky enough to get a date here and it's the second to last day of the tour. And, uh, you got balcony seats, which you were happy about. And I screwed up getting front row seats. <laughs> well, and that is in fairness. You're like five feet farther back than you wanted to be. Right. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> when you could, okay. So, but here's the thing. Like I had, I had my pick of any seat in the front row. I got in every single seat was available. And I thought I had the code and it wasn't working. Then I tried some other codes. Wasn't working. I'm like, oh, God. And then a couple of the front row seats went. It's like, And I thought, I was like, oh, crap, wait a minute. I have a subscription to a pre-sale code website. So I hadn't, I thought I canceled that. So that's why I didn't think of it. But I'm like, well, at this point, I'm in a panic because tickets are starting to go. So I go to the website, log in. Don't you know it works? I get the code, go over to Ticketmaster, and it, it actually opens up the ticket sales. By the time it goes through, all the first and second row are sold out. I was like, God damn it. <laughs> so I missed out, man. I, I literally had every seat available, so it would have been front row center. But I got third row center, so that was cool. Um, and again, you 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 are in the balcony, so so how is your view going to be? Uh, it's going to be awesome. I think in the last three, four shows, I almost – well, I refuse to go to House of Blues anymore unless I get balcony. I got center, and I believe I'm fifth row. And, I mean, there's just – to me, there's no better way to see the full stage of a show and be that close. And the sound of House of Blues is almost always really good. Um, yeah, I just love that. that that's going to be weird for you because we're not used to putting chairs on the floor. I know. House of Blues. So that's kind of like I almost don't like that. It's what I don't like about the what is it? The MGM around here. Yeah. Where you're sitting on those folding chairs and you're looking up at the stage like that kind of blows like. But I don't know. This the House of Blues stage isn't isn't all that big, so I'm sure it's going to be an awesome seat there for you. Yeah, I mean, it'll be fine. I, 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 it's not like there's some huge production that I have to pay attention to. So you know, it's it's basically you know, two guys standing there playing, and then one guy sitting back there playing drums. So yeah, <laughs> nothing nothing too crazy. Um, I mean, is it, is it a statement to like what the crowd they expect? Okay, it's gonna be old dudes, so they're not gonna <laughs> want to stand all night. I mean, yeah. I'm not even joking. Like, like, okay, you know, it's not like you're gonna be head. I mean, you'll you'll be bobbing your head, but you're not gonna start a mosh pit and all this to that. And and yeah, you know, you're not gonna be like, I don't know, you're not gonna be singing along. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. But but, but yeah, I mean, I've never. I'm just anxious to see this because I literally have never heard of chairs in front of the stage at this venue we're going to. I haven't either, um, but I, I'm I'm sure it's going to be awesome. I mean, honestly, uh, <laughs> our buddy Sean Faust, good to see you, man. He says, "Mosh to Happy Song." <laughs> Dude, I nice. love that song. It's so cool. <laughs> That's great. Robert um, Reams will be there. Last time I saw him up at uh, Symphony X, so he's my new concert buddy. Yeah, Robert Reams says he'll be there. He's got balcony seats as well. Maybe you guys are sitting next to each other. Who knows? That's actually happened to me before at concerts. That'd be cool. <laughs> so, yeah, but um. Yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be a cool experience for sure, man. It's, you know, the only time he's ever toured solo and you know, to see him in Portnoy is just going to be incredible. And, and the, the ticket demand is there because I'm wondering if it's not sold out already. I haven't checked, but yesterday with just that first Live Nation pre-sale, 
they, I mean, it had to be 80, 90% sold out already. So I'm wondering, you know. Yeah, I have I have no idea. I'm always bad on that because it's like there's times you look and you think they're all gone and then you get there and you're like, well, where the hell is everybody, you know? <laughs> it's it's right. weird like that with some of these shows. But yeah, I, I'm with you. Like, I mean, I we would be going no matter what, but the Portnoy yeah. thing, I think really sort of, that 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 ups it big time you know let's just yeah. be honest here well i mean it may be the only time you'll ever see them playing together unless you know they, they do another you know like lte tour or something like that so it's yeah. you know i mean it's i mean i i think with ticket insurance for my pair of tickets was like i want to say 315 oh, wow. so it was it was close to you know 160 dollars a ticket but, you know, for me, it's like it's a once in a lifetime thing. And, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, you'd have to take away my Dream Theater fan cred if they're in my t- if John Petrucci's in my town on his only solo tour ever and I don't go. <laughs> you mean like Jordan Rudis? Like what yeah. a dope you'd be if you didn't go to that? that don't open that can of worms. But, <laughs> but uh, no, I, yeah, yeah. But let's go back to this pre-sale. Can we be done with this pre-sale garbage? Like, okay, well, you got to have the blabbermouth code. But then if you're the Platinum House of Blues code, but then if you're a Ticketmaster, and I was able to get in because I have a Ticketmaster account, which literally means, all it means is I have an email, right? I mean, there's, there's yeah. nothing. So, because I was worried because it was like, well, it's Live Nation pre-sale. I'm like, well, I don't have a Live Nation. But then it said, well, if you have a Ticketmaster account. And I'm like, oh, you mean the, the email thing I have? <laughs> or like it's like it's some big deal but it's like you're still buying the ticket so why is it pre-sale i don't know they they make it so i get is that so to try to discourage scalping or or what is what is all that about i i i don't know um it's i i wonder myself i mean in a way it's kind of good because you know before the pre-sale thing you know all the scalpers did get you know all the ticket websites just blocked off all the all the front rows and everything like that and I mean, people still do it, though. I mean, as I was buying my third row tickets, the first and second row was sold out. And then all of a sudden, a pair of second row tickets popped up and they were going for two hundred and forty bucks a piece. <laughs> wow. So almost almost double face value within seconds of purchasing. So that was kind of crazy. But um, so back to tonight's topic. And you were mentioning Terry Brown. But, um, you know, I, we got to preface this a little bit because this is going to be a very interesting deep dive for us, because for me. I am not a Rush fan, and that doesn't mean I don't like them. I'm familiar with the radio songs, but I had never listened to an entire record before. Whereas you, you might as well have a Rush podcast like you have a Dream Theater podcast. You know what I mean? Like you're a monstrous Rush fan. So for you, you know, you're again, as I said at the outset, you're going to be our subject matter expert. But this also gave you the opportunity to buy the 40th anniversary edition, which I believe you are showing off right now. Yep, there we go. So, so for the audio listeners, we apologize. This is a video yeah. thing, but <laughs> this is horrible podcasting. <laughs> I know. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of cool. So I'll just tell you quickly what's in this book. Um, basically, there's like a seven pages of like just kind of memories, anecdotes, and it's a weird. I would have never guessed in a million years some of the people that are in here. Now, one of them is obvious, Les Claypool. Um, does a page, but there's the guy that starts it out that really floored me. Kim Thale from Soundgarden gets like five pages to talk Rush, really? which I would not have guessed that in a million years. I mean, very cool. Um, Taylor Hawkins has a blurb in here. 
um bill kelleher who's from uh, mastodon is actually the yeah. guitar player i believe not the drummer so those are the main guys they picked it's weird like there's no portnoy in here um you know there's no petrucci obviously I, I don't know i was i just thought it was an interesting and i'll reference some of the comments in here as we go to the songs like what these guys kind of said and stuff as sure. we go through this but I, you know it's very cool and there's there's two um there's two live albums in here also so I'm like an incredible audiophile. I have this great um, 40 year thing, and I do not have a turntable to play it on. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of starting to go down this rabbit hole. I guess I get this vinyl, and then I'll have to get something good. But uh, yeah, there's two live discs with basically, oh, let's see, 2112, Free Will, um, half of the album or whatever. And then there's another, I guess it's a. I think it's a remix. There's two. It's, it's got that 180 gram black vinyl. So people that are like true audiophiles know what all that stuff is. I have no idea. <laughs> I just know it looks really cool. But yeah, this is an awesome package they put together. And uh, there's some unreleased stuff on here, obviously. And yeah, just a, I don't know. I So I actually have the original Moving Pictures, which was actually my brother's album. Somehow I ended up with it and I dug it out of the cabinet down here. And it's great because it's, you know, it's all kind of crinkled up and dinged up on the sides and and just looking at it. And, I you know, something that hit me was this time period, the idea that you got to flip it over to get the rest of the songs. I don't know. Something about that just, like, clicked with me on how cool and unique that is. Like, wow, those first three are really cool. What are the last four? And then the fact that this album has four songs on one side and three on that. There's seven songs on here. It's like. Yeah it's just really strange like but i don't know it just brought back a flood of memories and and this time period and i'm a little bit older than you not not a ton but 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 man 1981 so i don't know if you just want to i want to get into a little bit some of the albums that came out then if you want to do that now or yeah of course okay so it's, it's always a good feature of the deep dives at least for me yeah so journey escape a few a couple hits on that one that wasn't a bad bad selling album no <laughs> yeah uh that actually, one's all right Probably my favorite Van Halen album, Fair Warning. Yes. You know, in fact, screw it. We're not doing Rush. We're doing Fair Warning. Switch topics. Where's my background? <laughs> nice. That sounds like a tease for two months from now, roughly. Yeah, that, that, a tease for our October 6th show. A little bit of Van Halen. Okay. Uh, Ozzy, Diary of a Madman, which... I, yep. I had that on vinyl. Don't Say No, Billy Squire. Extremely underrated album with just every song is a monster in my opinion i had that on al uh, vinyl okay i was off on the year of this one mob rules i thought was 82 it was 81 oh okay that's a good one yeah and the irony of this probably the, the best album by this trio from canada that's not rush allied forces triumph same year both that same year both bands released probably what's considered their seminal album i guess Okay. Uh Cab Genesis, that's kind of when the, the beginning of the Peter Gabriel's gone and we're going more rock mainstreamish, I guess you want to call it. Four and four. Um, there was no band or album bigger for almost a two year period until probably Michael Jackson came along to that four and four album. It was just you could not get away from it. It was just absolutely everywhere with jukebox hero and urgent and and uh, all those songs on there um Def Leppard High and Dry which I won't pretend to have listened you know, I'm not gonna be those people oh I got into them then like no I didn't know anything about Def Leppard until Pyromania came. 
you know. <laughs> right. And uh, Killer's Iron Maiden. And the last one I'll say is uh, ACDC for those about to rock. So that's a pretty that's a pretty heavy uh, lineup there. That's a lot of really good <laughs> records, man. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, just a lot of like, okay, probably the greatest record they ever did, um, Triumph. Um, I don't know. What do you think about Diary? Would you put that uh, ahead of anything or no? On the, on the list we're talking about? Well, in terms of Ozzy's. Uh, it's a battle between that and Ultimate Sin for me. Okay, so I, you'll, I, you'll I, at least I, say it's got a chance, right? Yeah, it's it's definitely top two easily for, for Ozzy records okay. for me. I love Diary, but I, I love Ultimate Sin. I know a lot of people say, oh, that was the hair, hair Ozzy record or whatever. But, I mean, Jakey e. Lee on that record was just insane. So I'd love it. You know, the one thing I did not realize about this until I kind of went back and looked is how Rush just put out so many albums so quickly. Yeah. From 74 to 78, they had six albums, two in one year. But that that's how bands were doing it back, though, then. I mean, it's like, I mean, look at Van Halen. They had, you know, between 78 and 84, they had six records, but they had, you know, with after Fair Warning, they they really split it out between, you know, Diver Down in 1984. So they were really kind of, you know, smashing them in there. So, I mean, that's just how bands did it back then. If If you were successful... The labels wanted you to put something out like right away and keep staying on the road. So, yeah, they 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 definitely did that. So Terry Brown was on f- sort of Fly By Night all the way up to Signals. That's his. Uh, that's a lot of serious albums there. But they did, yeah, they did three in a row: eighty, eighty-one, and eighty-two between um, Permanent Waves, Moving Pictures, and then Signals. <laughs> it's like, yeah, those are three um, pretty darn seriously consider like that's kind of like consider their own sort of period their trifecta period right there of that but three and three years like wow i mean yeah so what, what is your first um inclination with hearing rush in terms of listening to this record or just overall because well, overall, overall like overall it was just kind of like they were there i never okay. really had a reaction to it it was like one of those things like okay like obviously i knew tom sawyer uh working man limelight all that stuff and you know it was it was uh you know it was it was cool it was just kind of there it's nothing i ever saw it out um our, our buddy chris aiken chimes in on your point about the trifecta he says and then came grace under pressure yikes <laughs> hey, i like that album so oh, zip it aiken <laughs> nice but um, sweet haircuts too <laughs> Yeah, I you know, Rush was just kind of there. It wasn't anything that I sought out. It wasn't anything I I liked or disliked. It was like, okay, that's cool. I didn't turn it off, but I didn't, you know, run out to the store to, you know, get it. So you know, this is really my first I mean, it's not just a deep dive into this record for me. It's kind of like a deep dive into the band in a way. Because this is the most I've ever listened to them. And I got to say, man, I really really like this record. You know, a lot of times when you do stuff like this, um you know, it's like learning songs for a cover band. Like you, you do it because you have to. It's not because it's enjoyable. And and sometimes you get stuck listening to stuff just because you have to. You know, we've done discography discussion. We did that Symphony X thing, and and it was good. But I find myself in the middle going, God damn, I got to listen to another Symphony X record. <laughs> and um, with this one, I just kept listening to Moving Pictures because I enjoyed it. 
So I, I really got into it, man. It was really, really cool, and it's kind of making me want to go down the rush rabbit hole a little bit. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do that. But yeah, f- 41 minutes, seven songs. This is like the perfect kind of you know for that what they called album oriented rock time period. Mm-hmm. And well, uh, and this and correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't Camera Eye their longest song ever? Did I read that correctly? Uh, probably, unless you count like. 2112 in its entirety or something maybe i i I thought i read that it's like their only song that's like 10 minutes or longer yeah yeah it's 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 rare (laughs) aiken of course has to bust my balls says john drake discovers rush in 2022 always having the pulse of rock music you know that tom sawyer that's a that's a rocking little ditty there (laughs) boy these three canadians i think they got a future (laughs) sean faust he says uh a farewell to kings or hemispheres next Okay. Well, we yeah, let's not over and overdo you there. <laughs> I'll probably right. point you towards signals just to keep you on track for a bit. <laughs> okay. Before it gets but, too out there. So what makes Rush like I mean, is Rush your favorite band? Like, you know, we've talked on the show how Van Halen's my favorite band and then there's Dream Theater is number is a close number two. Is Rush your number one? You know what? I you know what I will say? I think they're my most appreciated band. Okay. Because I, I not only appreciate them for their music, but I've always just like these guys were brothers. They did not care about fame. They did not care about money. They did not care about album sales. They cared about the music and the friendships. And if, when you listen to interviews, that's what they'll they'll tell you. You know, like they just that's just the way they saw it, and that's the way they did it, and 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 that's why it lasted as long as it did. I would assume it, you kind of have to have it that way because it, it's only a trio. If you're in like a five-piece band, you can get away from, you can hang out with one of the other band members and still have three guys like going, you just ah, piss off, you know, whatever. Um, uh, by the way, 2112, 1974 is correcting me. Thank you. Yeah, he says, no, it was their last 10 plus minute song. Okay, there we go. Thank you for that. Yeah, I was gonna um, say I think um, Xanadu is like eleven minutes, but I couldn't think of okay. that. Yeah, you well, know, I, going back to your point, it's like it's also when the when bands when the roles are clearly defined. Like I don't know who wrote the lyrics before Neil Peart came in, but whenever he first started writing lyrics, they're like, "Oh yeah, okay, <laughs> it's over. You're just doing it from now on." You know what yeah. I mean? Like, so there was never any arguments about, "Well, I'm gonna write the lyrics, or I'm gonna get the song credits, or you know, like it just." I don't know, and then, and then they just tried to make the best, you know, music that they could. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, it, everything I've ever read about them, which granted isn't a lot, but you know, and I've seen it because I did that. That was beyond the lighted stage. I think it's called that documentary about them. Yeah. Um, yeah, like you said, they're they're basically like brothers and stuff like that. And you know, you make a great point. It's hard to keep that together because there's less people. So your your interpersonal relationships are more focused than they would be with more band members to kind of spread your attention around to. So, so I, it's just cool, man. So I think I, I definitely agree with you that one of the attractive things about them as a band is that they are friends and stuff like that. I mean, that's that it goes a long way when you know that the guys that you're listening to are actually cool and you know, like they get along and there's not dicks, you know, it's like, it's kind of like the Dave Mustaine thing. Like I like Megadeth, but there's always that thing in the back of my head when I listen to him, like, man, Dave Mustaine is a cock. Like <laughs> it's it just, you know what I mean? Like it, it affects you that way. Um, 
Chris Aiken says, as great as Rush was on record, you don't get it until you see it. I love them live, but really only like up until the early 80s, early 80s on albums, excuse me. Yeah, I've, I've been told that, too, that Rush Live was just like ridiculous. And I did look some stuff up on YouTube to catch that, too. And it was wow. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll full disclosure, too. I was not a fan of probably the last two albums, at least. You know, when I saw the songs on there done live, I liked them a little more. But, you know, when you have that vast of a catalog i mean i don't care who you are it's just it's impossible to come up with you know especially yeah. like how do you just keep topping yourself you know like well yeah. you're, you're not to get a better drum part than than stuff that goes on in tom sawyer right you know i mean yeah <laughs> right. there's incredible stuff on signals too that's maybe a little more technical but at some point it just like you know you can't top yourself but yeah the, the newer stuff i wasn't a huge fan of but i appreciate the fact that they didn't care like we like creating albums we're going to do them we're going to tour on them and we'll still play you know, maybe three songs on them if we're lucky because, you know, we've got to play 14 hits a night. You know, how many songs from new album can we possibly play? Yeah. Well, let's dig into this. I, I have some notes here. I'd be interested to get your thoughts because, again, this is this is a little different. It's not a record that you, you know, we're both, you know, huge fans of and we've been listening to for years. And so, you know, for me, this I'm kind of coming at this with fresh ears. I'm like a rookie, whereas you are, you know, the seasoned Rush veteran. So, I you know, my first note is that I can see why this is their most popular record. It's a very easy listen. It flows nicely. Uh, you know, it's got a really cool feel to it. It's very atmospheric. There's, it's even, well, I shouldn't say even for, especially for a record recorded during that time. It's very lush. And, you know, it, 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 there's a lot going on, which which is w the one thing that's always fascinated me about Rush is that for three guys, they make so much noise. It's really cool. Um, Getty Lee's bass tone is just godlike. I mean, I to the point where, you know, we'll, I have a point about that when we get into Tom Sawyer here in a minute. But um, and the other thing that I noticed that's really cool is like they're known as this prog band. They're, they're like, you know, influenced all these you know bands that came after them. But they wrote, wrote all these songs that appeal to the prog crowd but also to a mainstream radio crowd. You know, I don't think you can say any other band except for potentially Pink Floyd that was, you know, there, there hasn't been another band that's like progress that, that, you know, appeals to both of those crowds. You know what I mean? So I thought that was really cool. And, um, you know, and, and the other thing that I noticed, and I, I've always heard this, you know, about Neil Peart's lyrics is how intelligently written they are and everything. And man, that really stood out. And I am not lyric guy by any stretch of the imagination. I only notice them if if they suck. <laughs> if a lyric is obviously crap, then I'm like, okay, that stood out. But if if it's if it's not something that stands out, I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm listening to the guitar. I'm listening to the the drums, the bass, whatever. And on this stuff, man, I was actually digging into like, what's the meaning of this song? You know, like, what does this mean? What does that mean? You know, I actually had a note for a minute on, on camera eye saying, is this actually about just taking freaking pictures? God damn it. <laughs> so uh, I hope I have so, answers for those. I probably don't. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's it's not. But um, Austin Donnelly, good to see you, man. He says this album is the perfect gateway into prog rock, in my opinion. And Aiken says that Asia was another band that appealed to both crowds. Yeah, but I mean, did a how many? hits did asia have compared to rush though i mean i would have to say rush had more than asia no asia probably had about four total maybe three to four okay. but uh yeah asia's a good example i think of like our 
maybe a poor man's rush. I don't know about the gateway into that term just always scares me. Prog rock. Does it scare you sometimes? <laughs> like, no, but I, but I think it's, I think it's weird to me now because I think of dream theater as progressive. So when I hear something like rush considered progressive, I'm like, I'm waiting for all these insane time changes and all that. That And it's, I have to remember the dream theater just took what came before them and basically juiced it up on steroids. So, you know, yeah. No, it's a so one of the albums I didn't mention that's on this 1981 list is Police Ghost in the Machine. And I was like doing some research and stuff online, reading some stuff. And I was thinking back to some of the songs on there. And I'm like, man, these are actually very similar sounding in some of the guitar tones. And sometimes when they get into almost a reggae feel and some stuff and they don't do it Mm -hmm. often, but but it goes it does go there like the police would do a five minutes, four and a half minute song on that. Whereas Rush was like, okay, well, you know, take a little bit of a breakdown here, like on Spirit of Radio and whatnot or whatever, and do that, or even on Vital Signs, there's kind of some some elements of that. But sure. But uh yeah, atmospheric is definitely the word. And and I was reading too, like Rush, like it was, there was no skimping with the record company or with them, like we're using the top the top line, you know, recording equipment, the top producer, you know, we got our synthesizers out here and and uh you know, just for the opening riff of that Tom Sawyer, like you think like how simple is that it's just it's so simple like it's the one note on the on the the overheim i guess it's the overtime or the moog and then the drum beat comes in and the guitar comes right right it's just like wait this is like considered the greatest rock song of all time if you just hear the first (laughs) like three seconds of it but then his voice kicks in and it's just like the hair on the back of your neck stands up like i don't know the melody is just it's like this super high you know vocal in there with that killer guitar and then that drum beat is just like you know hitting you the, the bass drum is just thumping you right in the stomach and you're like wow yeah well i mean it's you know i mean we'll get into it i mean my first note regarding tom sawyer it's the rush song you know you love him or hate him everybody when, when you hear you know tom sawyer you know it and you know what band it is so you know it's and, and you know i i mentioned i kind of teased this earlier but you know Getty's bass tone in the guitar solo on this song is just that that's when it really stands out you, you first get that first taste of it to the point where I I was like oh there's a guitar solo going on every single other time I listened to this song radio whatever I it just I was I was listening to the bass I'm like oh crap there's guitar going on I realized that <laughs> doing the deep dive because I was just so into that sound and it's it's crazy well, it's, and, it's more of a lead instrument than a support, you know, it sort of does yeah. both at the same time, which, which you're a bass player, you know, that, that is not easy to do <laughs> to, to play. Okay. Well, but you know what I'm saying though, like to, to, <laughs> yeah. to make it sound like you're supporting, but you're also leading and driving it. That that's an art. And like, yes, this, this, this album permanent, this, this, this trifecta, as, as we call it, the, the bass all kind of sounds like, and sort of does that to where almost like it's a second guitar. If you didn't know any difference, like if you yeah. didn't know the difference in looking or hearing like, well, that, that's a good, another guitar doing that because look, look at how they're driving it and, and leading it. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's, it, it, you, you make a perfect, perfect point. And I was going to bring that up later that it's like, he, he rides that very fine line between rhythm instrument and lead instrument. And, he cross he crosses over to either side multiple times within a song and, and you know there's not a lot of guys that can do that nearly as well as he as he does and i mean to do that and lead sing at the same time is just it's crazy 
Uh, it's man. He he's here. Okay, so I'm getting <laughs> sure. Okay, it's coming. You gotta pull it up. All right. So, all right. Look. Okay. You know this stuff. So my point was that yes, they said yes was a band that crossed over to both audiences. I said they had. I said I disagree. They had one big hit. You know what is that? Owner of a broken heart, lonely heart, whatever the hell it is. What was another big song that everybody can name? Just because you know it doesn't mean Aiken, you fat bastard. He says, John John doesn't know anything about the 70s unless it starts with Van and ends with Halen. I know Led Zeppelin too, you prick. And not just the record. Dude, okay, like, when you think about hit songs, it's it's not like something everybody names. John doesn't know anything about 60s unless it starts with Van and ends with Morrison. (laughs) I don't even know a Van Morrison song. (laughs) Come on, brown-eyed girl, jeez. Okay, well, I do know that one. I do know that one. But yeah, it's not I mean, dude, see look, okay, Sean Faust, Rhythm of Lover, or Rhythm of Love, that's a Scorpion song, Sean. Uh Roundabout. I, I don't know Roundabout. Well, off of 90215. I don't know you, Rhythm you of have, Love. Uh, you have It Can Happen. That was probably the second biggest hit off of there. Love Will Find a Way was the album after that. That was fairly big. Just stop. I'm right on this one. I, I'm not I, I'm willing to die on this hill. I will okay. say I will say you're more right than they are. Actually, yeah, I think you're both actually kind of wrong, but I think they're more wrong than you are. Will we get a YouTube dig if I flash? If I if I throw up a, a, a like a double bird? Like, <laughs> Don't chance it anymore, man. Yeah, I right, know. <laughs> Enough Facebook jail for me, man. Um, yeah, Tom. Yeah. Tom Sawyer. So th- to go back to that, um, did you ever go roller skating back? Like you know grade school or so your your music that they played would have been different than mine but it was like all right your your discos or like did you hear like the star wars disco theme yeah that's blasting along <laughs> roller skating and then all of a sudden like you know they would tom sawyer would come and i'll be like oh man this is awesome you know and i get down to my stance and do my like one leg out and you know my one trick i can do which i'm not even good at but it was like i felt like awesome out there with the you know with the lights down low and flashing and tom sawyer comes on you know and you're like going around the roller rink to to, to break up your pat benatars you know and your disco yeah <laughs> yep yeah i it's the thing that always gets me about this song and it was like i, I always love the groove to it so to your point you know when you if you roller skate to it or do something like that you know it's a perfect song to do that too but as I was digging into this, like I, I was really listening to the drums. Like, and he's doing a lot of stuff that you don't really notice unless you're actually listening for it. There, there. It's funny because, like, as as musically gifted as they are, and, and and they're known as being like such virtuosic guys, virtuosic, whatever the word is. Um, like, there's a lot of subtlety to what they're doing, and it it it, it seems simple off the top when you really dig into it. It's really not. And I, I think that's just fascinating. It's like there's so much to listen to. Like it was, it, it was, it was man, it was a lot of fun to listen to this to find those little nuggets like that. And you know, Tom Sawyer, you know, Pert's groove on there. There's a lot of like little symbol, you know, stuff that he's doing there. And you know, uh, we do have a question for you from the person on the losing end of our argument regarding yes. Uh, Chris Aiken wants to know question for Brian. Why do you think Tom Sawyer was so enormous, but New World Man didn't quite get to that level? You know, that's actually a great example of that reggae thing I was talking about, because in the verses of that, he's a it's like up picking and stuff like mm-hmm. like in the verses of that song. And then it's it's not 
when the course comes in it's rocking with the guitar and keyboard and stuff but the verses is really has that uh that reggae feel to it so i don't know if it wasn't rock enough or if the album came so quick and everyone's still writing the highs of moving pictures and tom sawyer that they're just not even quite ready yet because they're like but you know subdivisions was huge off of there so yeah i, I don't know I, I love new world man as a song of course i'm a huge fan of signals anyway but i i think maybe maybe that kind of funky you know reggae-ish verse that they do in that song i i don't know okay yeah i i think i've heard that song like once but i, I know what you're talking about with the verse and m- maybe that's it you know reggae isn't as as direct i guess as a straight rock beat so maybe that yeah, I use the term people, reggae loosely. It doesn't sound like Bob Marley, you know. It's just no, like, yeah, but I know what you mean, like with the upbringing. Right, right. yeah. Yep. So, all right. So, moving on to track two, which, uh, full disclosure, uh, that is uh, my favorite song on the record. I absolutely cannot get this damn song out of my head. Red Barchetta. Uh, this is this is another one. Like I, I was wondering what the hell it was about when I looked up the lyrics, and you know, it's it, it's cool because so so many of Neil Peart's stuff, you know, it, it's actually a story, and I didn't know that going into this, so that's pretty cool. But a red Barchetta is actually a Ferrari. It, it it's actually a car. So I was like, oh, that's cool. So um, yeah, th- this song is man, like the story's cool, you know the you know, before the motor law. So you know it it just again back to the lyrics super intelligent lyrics tells a great story and and it, it the song moves it just kind of grooves it's got a really good pace to it and you kind of like bop along to it but it, it's also super melodic in all of its parts as well and man it, i i love i absolutely love this song and i know that this is um i i know that this is you know a fa- a favorite of rush fans and i can totally see why because this song is just great all the way through it's, now, it's this the, the first time you ever heard this um i i i would say that I be, because i mean I, I i've listened to little bits and pieces here and there but never like a full song and i mean full disclosure i probably listened to the dream theater cover of it that's on one of like the christmas cds or something like that and oh, not okay. the actual rush version so but no, you know that's cool i was just curious yeah, I mean, dude, this really is very new to me. So, um, yeah, th- this is definitely the song that I came back to the most on on the record. So, I I love I I love this song. This is I, I can see why fans love this one. You know the how an album is great when the first song is over and you're like, oh man, I want to hear Tom Sawyer again, and then they start the intro, the down down down, and you're like, yes, yeah, like, like you're like, oh, and then you're like, oh my god, I forgot this was coming up right away, like, yep, yeah, well, what a great, what a great riff, man. Yeah, it, it was funny because I was listening to some of the live stuff and I, I pulled up the Cleveland show from 2011 that they put out, and you know they did this record in its entirety and every time a new song comes on the crowd just goes bonkers it's like <laughs> they know what's coming but they're still like shitting their pants over it it's you know so that's perfectly to your point but uh yeah you get the feel of you know like when it speeds up there you know of going fast in the car you know you can totally feel like that wind in your hair and stuff in some of the lyrics they're talking about but like you you honestly you get that experience from what they're doing you know what they're writing about and and they're able to convey that. And that's just that's just not easy to do. I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, it shows the intellect 
and the intelligence of the, of the music, you know, to be able to to do that, to actually make you feel something and, and feel that story. It's, you know, it, just another thing. Pert was a genius, man. Like, I, that was one of the most fun things about doing this to me was that getting to, you know, dig into his stuff. It, it, because, you know, everybody reveres the guy. And just with one record, I can see why. And it was really cool because it, you know, like I said, went down the rabbit hole. And as I would look up lyrics, it would bring up the meaning of other songs and other things that he did, you know, with the band. And it was so cool. So, yeah. So, all right. So moving on to track three, the quintessential instrumental song, YYZ. Uh, I think, is, is there anybody that considers themselves, considers themselves, excuse me, a prog fan? that doesn't hear that bing 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 like oh here we go <laughs> like i think that's like pretty much you know gospel at this point for progressive rock fans so i found out the interesting backstory of this song and i don't know if you've ever heard this before i okay. had heard something like this but i didn't know the details so it, it's in the um liner notes here so YYZ is the international air transport association code for the toronto airport Okay. And what they are doing during, I guess, the beginning or middle of the song, they're playing YYZ actually in rhythm to Morse code. <laughs> now, I don't know really? about Morse code other than like, I, we ever as a kid, like I remember one Christmas we got walkie talkies. So I'm like, my brother would go upstairs and I'd go downstairs. And then you have like the package that tells you how to do Morse code. So you try to like, do, 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 like try to say something and be like, wait, what did you just do? <laughs> like, I have no idea. But yeah, like kind of a cool little side thing, just goofy little deal that they did. So that's actually what that refers to. And, uh, and there's an interesting thing on Les Claypool's uh, nugget in there. So uh, Getty Lee did a this massive book of, I don't know how many bases are in there, 300 or something, oh, whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's all these photos and then there's just, you know, just, I don't think every single one of them has a story. I don't know, because that would be a lot. But but he Les Claypool had a collection and he had some specific ones that Getty Lee wanted to to check out for his book and interview him and stuff. So he came over there and he said, well, the one he's like, oh, here's the only deal is like, you have to show me uh, if I'm playing, you know, how to play YYZ if I'm playing it right. And uh, he's like, you know, there's a surreal moment, you know, the album I learned, you know, note for note, you know, <laughs> playing in my bedroom, yeah. my hero standing here and playing it. And it's like, yeah, you know, 43 years I've been playing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. sure enough i had some parts wrong i don't know i just thought it was kind of funny just a just a cool little side note on that but yeah I, the quintessential tune i i love this the synths in this the way they're placed i mean just this whole album it's like yeah we got a synthesizer how can we work it in here and just just enough to you know tempt your palate to where you want a little bit more but if you put more in it'd be too much you know yeah well and that's that, i have that in my notes you know it's like it's it's like perfectly written because it's not too long and it stays interesting to the ear the whole time. You know, there it, it's they get into a cool part and you get just enough of that to where and then when it changes you're like, "Okay, cool." You're not thinking, "Oh, I could have gone for more of that or oh, that went too long." And it's 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 perfectly timed. And you know, again, back to Getty Lee. I mean, his bass work on this song is just man, oh man. And that mellow part in the middle I, that's the one part I wish they could have expanded on, because that's yeah. just a beautiful melody. I I love when it when it you know 
you know, just like kind of like eases into that and just kind of, man, it's it's so melodic and it's just so beautiful. It's cool to have something like that in the middle of all that craziness. So I thought it was like perfectly placed. So I really I really dug that. Yeah, that song was nominated for a Grammy for best instrumental, I guess, which I didn't even know was a thing in 81. But that's in there. I don't know if it won, but it was. So I'm pretty sure I would assume that it didn't say anything about Tom Sawyer. So and given the state of like how Grammys were, I'm sure that they got zero. (laughs) Well, I I said were still are right. Did but, did, uh, did Jethro Tull win win the Grammy yeah, that year? Yeah, yeah. Queen Queen won for their for their Metallica cover, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> like using their time machine or something. Yeah, <laughs> nice. But uh, oh. yeah, I mean, YYZ, like you know, there's there's parts of that in some in some Dream Theater stuff, like even like Looking Glass has a little bit of a feel of of that in it, you know, for sure. Yep. And we've talked about you know plenty of other Dream Theater songs that have some rush influence but uh yeah i mean that's that's just the ultimate you know like you said you only get what four and a half minutes or whatever it is out of it and that's all you need yeah it's perfect all right so moving on to track four on the record we have obviously uh one of the radio hits and and an absolute classic from rush's catalog limelight uh i love this tune I, I, you know, if it weren't for Red Barchetta, this 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 was my favorite Rush song, but it's been overtaken by Red Barchetta. But Limelight is just, you know, I think, I think if I was ever able to play a Rush song live, this would be the one that I would I would choose. I, I would want to do this one because that chorus is like so cool, and it it's got melody all the way through, like all of its parts. Like there's something to hear, like melodically, and. The the thing the one thing that I think is really really cool about this song Brian is it's got like this may not be the right terminology because I'm an idiot but I, I kind of think of it as like a deconstructed chorus where you know it, they break it down to like you know the broken chords and uh, you know they you know just simple melody and just really mellow kind of and the rest of the song is is the, you know the part that rocks. And I just I just think that's such a cool songwriting technique. And they use it, man, they use it to such great effect on this song. And it's just I mean, it, it makes that melody stand out, uh, stand out that much more. So I I love that about this song. And it, it's just it, it's this this song is like peanut butter on the roof of your mouth. It's I can never get enough of it. Anytime it's on the radio or if it comes up at random, I'm you know, when I'm listening to, you know, when I'm listening to stuff, um, you know, it's, I never skip it. It's great. So what are your thoughts on limelight? Yeah, this is a, I don't know how much you know about it, but this is a very kind of a personal song to Neil sort of speaking to his, especially the line, you know, I can't pretend a stranger is a long awaited friend. And it's this idea that like, he just really is not comfortable with that persona and like, doesn't like being adored and doesn't like you know fans falling all over him and he just and it's not that he doesn't like it just makes him feel uncomfortable and when you really think about it you 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 can kind of relate to it on a universal level like like man you know i just this i didn't get into it for this at all you know i'm into this for the music and stuff and it's like i kind of want to just be left alone but i realize the fans are a part of it but it's like i can't just turn on the switch and be like 
you know, it's not that he wasn't appreciative at all, but he just really was a very kind of quiet, private guy that that just didn't really want or need all of that. Yeah. It's, again, a story by Neil Peart, as, as they all are. And this one's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. You know, especially if you know Neil Peart and his, you know, infamous reclusivity, I guess would be a term to use. You know, he, he Like you said, he's not comfortable being the center of attention he just kind of wants to be left alone and he's a little curmudgeonly in that uh kind of you know in that area he just wants nothing to do with the fame and fortune or wants it i should say but um yeah i you know musically i mean again this this is that perfect example of what we talked about at the outset you know saying that this is a band that you know appeals to both the prog crowd and to the radio rock crowd and i you know this song is it's got that instantly recognizable riff that monster chorus and yet it's got some really cool musicianship to it as well so i think it it it, it rides it rides that rail between both worlds really nicely <coughs> <laughs> look at haken he's a fun grammy fact motorhead's only grammy came for a metallica cover of whiplash <laughs> How about lost oh, wow. <laughs> that's okay i covered for you <laughs> oh man um yeah i mean that, that that's one of the most iconic guitar riffs of all time opens that you know like i just you know as soon as you hear that you're like it's just a gonna be one of the greatest greatest rock songs ever recorded just coming your way and you know <laughs> yeah i just wondered like the first time anyone ever heard this or bought the album like did you realize that like did they realize that when they recorded this? I mean, obviously not. Nobody, nobody would know something is going to become this iconic, no matter what it is. I don't think. Do you? No. I mean, I think he. I mean, no. But no one, no one writes for that purpose. And and the ones that do, I mean, with the exception of like you know the greatest songwriters ever, like the Beatles and people like that. You know, if, if you're trying to write for the purpose of writing a hit, it doesn't happen. You know, it's it's not really organic. I mean, you can make it happen, and there's people like Desmond Child who can just, like, whip up, you know, top ten singles, you know, six times a day. But, you know, for the average musician and writer, even some of the best of them, it, it's difficult. And, you know, it, with Rush, they're a prog band, so I, I find it hard to believe that they're sitting there going, oh, we better write a hit on this one, you know, because they're just, that's not their thing. But their style was to you know write these catchy parts and then put the prog musicianship into it and honestly i would say that that's like the biggest influence that they had on dream theater because that's really the dream theater formula as well like you'll have this catchy riff and then a big chorus but then you have all that crazy musical stuff in and out you know between the parts like that but there's always that melodic anchor there's always that really cool riff that you can latch on to it's not just a bunch of noodling for the sake of noodling. Like there's an actual method to the madness. And, you know, I think they definitely get that from Rush. Yeah. And, and what's cool too, and, and the average fan, I don't know, knows this, like Getty Lee is one of those rare singers that sort of went through three vocal phases, you know, like they used to call him the chipmunk on acid, you know, <laughs> right. going back to the 2112 and working man stuff. And then here he's, he's kind of getting away from that, that whale he's still singing in a higher register, but as he gets older and goes on and on, that register really kind of drops some, but he's able to still really just keep a super tight melody 
and understand his limitations. And um, and it was weird seeing the last couple of years, like because you could tell he wasn't struggling to hit the notes. I don't think, but it was like just to kind of keep it in that style, mm-hmm. you know, like to kind of sort of maintain that feel of it, you know, like you would see him like he, his face would contort and, and this and that. And he sounded just a little bit, I don't want to say off, but there was a little bit of an affectation almost to try to still pull this off, but it still sounded solid to me. I mean, yeah. for a guy as old as he was and to sing a lot of these songs, but uh, it, that's just something you don't really see where singers go through phases like that. Well, and I mean, it's understandable. I mean, the guy, shit it was what 40 plus years they were doing it so i guess that's to be expected um aiken has another question for you brian they were so in the pocket with this era why do you think that albums like snakes and arrows presto hold your fire test for echo etc basically after the electronics electronica experiments could never find it again yeah i don't know so i will i will say presto i thought was very solid Hold Your Fire still had a lot of keyboards on it. Um, I Test for Echo is probably the one album I I just never go back to at all. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know if they lost their sense of 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 mel- maybe not melody, but maybe they just sort of wanted to be a little more experimental and a um, little more rock driven and and not necessarily get that hook in there on on some of the songs that that's what I would say. At least that's kind of what I heard on the snakes and arrows and the, and the, uh, working them angels or whatever the hell the last one was. Um, I get the two, I get the last two albums, uh, titles mixed up, but, <laughs> but yeah, and angels, I, arrows. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, honestly, like, and this is just me, you know, from personal experience writing songs, obviously not on their level by any means, but, you know, I I think once you start, you know, trying to spread out into other stuff, you kind of dilute the waters of what you do, and it gets harder to go back to, you know, all these bands when they you, they'll put out a new record and say, "Well, we're back to our roots," but is it ever really, you know, because it's like because that new style that you tried kind of gets into your into your bloodstream, it get, it gets into your style. And so you can never quite go back to that, the purity of what you had before you did that. So I'm wondering if that's, you know, and, and not being familiar with those records. I mean, that's just me positing, but um, that that's, you know, from someone who's I, I buy that to a degree. I mean, it got to a point where they were, I believe, um, Getty was writing songs around synth parts that he probably wanted in there. And I don't know that that was something that they wanted to, once they did three four albums like that you know i know that alex particularly was like you know we got to get away from this and that's why they kind of ended up with presto sort of going back to that well but uh i don't know that neil ran out of ideas because lyrically you know i still like most of it all the lyrics he said i just didn't think the melodies on a lot of the songs were strong but you know like i said he was losing his, his range wasn't as big either and um I don't know, like stuff like Vapor Trails, they kind of got almost a U2-ish a little bit there. And the guitar and even some of the vocals are really kind of atmospheric, I would say, for lack of a better word. Like well, Vapor Trails was still okay, but 
But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess it's just I, I think Neil, especially musically, definitely by the end, he was exhausted. I mean that that's well documented. Like yeah. he was he was just beyond done, and and he's had so, had some horrible tragedies that happened in his life, and then obviously he got sick. But I mean, he was just to the point where he was like, "Look, my feet are covered in blisters. My arms are, you know, I'm 64 years old or whatever. I'm up here. I'm bashing for three hours." You know, I just think the mental drain of all that, maybe that seeps over into trying to even get the creative energy, maybe to where, you know, because even if it drops off, let's say, I don't know, 15, 20 percent, when you're as good as Rush is, that's still better than most. But it's like, you know what I mean? But people are expecting Rush, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. that's just a theory. No, I, I, I think I think it makes perfect sense. And, you know, especially with with, with Neil. I mean his his drumming technique was very physical, even more physical than you would normally see a drummer put forth. You know, if, I've I've watched a couple things online, and there's, there's some I forget which which live DVD it's from, but there's some stuff on YouTube I looked at, and it's you know the camera is over top of the drums, and those drums are moving when he's playing. Like I don't know if he set that up purposely for them to move and get that kind of groove to it. But you don't see that with other kits. I mean, that guy's hitting hard, and that that man that that takes a toll. You know, I mean, you know, it. Twenty one, twelve, nineteen seventy four. He he brings up a good point. He said Neil always compared the amount of effort he put into every live show as to running a marathon. Hard, hard. It's harder to do in your fifties and sixties. Yeah, I mean, drumming is an incredibly physical instrument, and you know, my my drummer. You know, he, he, he gets beat up from just doing, you know, dumb pop cover tunes, but he's a hard hitter and he, he gets into the show. He, he, you know, he's got a lot of stage presence to him for a drummer and it does beat you up. So well, what, I, what about I, the idea in the documentary where the greatest, I guess we can, maybe we can't even argue, what, who's considered the greatest technical rock drummer of all time. Maybe we can agree on that. Like goes to take drum lessons. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you remember that in the documentary? Yeah, I, I think it was. I don't know if it was strictly physical for his physical problem, or he felt like he was losing his his ability. And it's like, and the guy really, if you watch the movie, like the guy, all the guy did was say, "Well, just kind of just do this a little bit different way. You're holding your stick here, or whatever." Now I don't know yeah. how much they didn't show of his drum lessons, but I guarantee this dude didn't just sit there and show Neil period how to play drums i mean that's not <laughs> but just right. like a little subtle thing but you have to be a genius mind to go oh well i can translate that little subtle thing into 45 years of muscle memory and flip that and and, and change the way i play and still sound like i do like i thought that was like a very uh vulnerable kind of look behind the scenes of, of of like a truly great art you know like a yeah you know, I don't know, like a, a Babe Ruth at 55 getting a swing lesson or, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, right. I don't know, something along those lines. I don't know. I just thought it was a really cool, like, look behind the curtain of like, man, these guys are as great as they are. They're human. They're not machines, you know? Well, it shows it, it shows humility. And we'll, we'll get we'll get to the second half of the record here in a second. But it shows a humility and an honesty that, you know, not a lot of musicians have. You know, you, you see you see guys like Stephen Piercy and Don Dockin and David Lee Roth running around croaking like frogs. They couldn't give a shit what they sound like, and they're just taking people's money. Whereas you got somebody like Neil Neil Pert, who's like recognized as the greatest drummer on the planet, 
and he's like, "Oh, I need lessons. I, I'm 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 losing it a little bit." Like that, you you don't you don't find that. You just don't see that. So you know, to your earlier point about you know their brothers and their their likable people, like that just makes them more likable. Because you could tell he's not just up there going like you know worship me. I'm Neil Peart. He's like, no, I'm just a dude who plays drums, <laughs> like, and that's that's cool. So, um, I like but that yeah, comment, so, comment from Aiken. How yeah. do you take Neil's money as a teacher? <laughs> yeah, right. I, I don't know if the guy actually. Te- maybe he just got a couple signed autographs or something. Who knows? But. That, that, that drum teacher probably had no idea who Neil Pert was. He's like, man, this old guy just came to me for lessons, and he was a prick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who this guy thinks he is, but this guy's got a lot to learn. <laughs> uh, he's never going to go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that rookie. I don't know why I even taught him. <laughs> but uh, All right, so moving on to uh, side two of the moving pictures record we have the camera eye and um one thing that i love about this song is that the key the keys remind me of a cheesy but great 80s sci-fi movie and there's a couple other keyboard sounds on this record that uh that do the same thing for me but i love it it just you know it comes right in with it and um i i love the, the tonality of the keys on this one it's really really cool um, I love the change up in the middle of the song. I, I thought that was really, really interesting. But but it also kind of made me laugh because it it's one of the few things they do that just literally comes out of absolutely nowhere, at least to me. And it almost sounded like they're like, ah, now nah, we're tired of this intro part. Let's do something else. <laughs> you know, the, the, I, I, I should say I was referring to the change in the beginning, but like, right, right. you know, it, it just goes into the like what the hell is that (laughs) well it's funny because you're coming you don't have any perspective on this at all right because you didn't hear 1981 where it's like oh my god what is that sound it sounds so cool now you hear it and you're like hey did these guys just go watch stranger things or something (laughs) yeah did did the stranger things dude come in here and play keyboards on this which i think is always the hilarious part of this stuff because like you know, it's like not to be get off my lawn guy, but it's like you have to look at it in the perspective. Okay, from the time, like I just remember hearing those sounds and like, man, how did they get all those like weird little, you know, those, those the different filters they're changed around the oscillators on the synth, and they all got to be moving them up and down and and all this weird stuff going on at once. And and then, like you said though, then they come up, mirror, 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 mirror. You know, it's like I always thought that was cool when that part came in, but uh, yeah, yeah, this is just a slow, super slow build. I mean, it's like. It's 10 minutes long, but I don't know. It's never felt that long for me because I'm always just wait. I'm just like waiting for the next part. I'm like, I can't wait for it to come. And uh... yeah, I, th- that's one of my notes. It's an almost 11 minute song, but it flows. And it, it's, it, you know, we've talked about dream theater songs that are really long, but don't feel that long. And this is definitely in that vein because, you know, you realize it's going on, but it's you're into it. It's, you know, it's it's just a really it's a really cool vibe to it. And. You know, there's some interesting, you know, they, they throw some curveballs at you in the song and um, it just flows really well. And it doesn't it does not drag, even even though, again, it's almost 11 minutes long. Um, now, for you. Is this like if you were to see them live? Is this like one of the songs? Like, oh, I, if I if I had a, a rush set list, I want to see this one because I I read a lot of comments from fans saying that this is kind of the song that they would really want to hear if they saw them and they didn't play it very much. No, you never got this, this and uh countdown 
from Signals I love, which has all the stuff from like the space shuttle in the background. But before the bad stuff happened with the space shuttle, let's just clarify that. But uh, yeah, they they never played this. That's why I was kind of bummed I missed the. Well, obviously, just I missed it in general. I was bummed, but the the show where they played the whole album because they just never played this song. Uh, so, what is your opinion on the topic, the subject of this? What do you think this is about? Well, from what I read, it's kind of like the difference between like New Yorkers and Londoners, I guess. Okay. So it's, I mean, okay, it, it's it's a topic, right? It's it's and it, it just it it kind of seems like one of those things like you know Neil Neil Pert was kind of it's just like a, you know, he was just watching things around him as he was on tour and being like, man, like these two cities are kind of similar but yet so different. I guess would be you know my interpretation of it i don't i don't know if that's correct so i mean people listening you know that that love this record and know this song don't crucify me but it's just it's just me guessing but um yeah i I, i've always kind of wondered too like it makes me feel like i went to work uh a couple times i went to washington dc for a work thing and i don't know if you've ever been to washington dc in general but like well, well you and i've gone to chicago a few times right yeah, multiply that just by a thousand of people just going to work, just constantly just going to work here, there, there, there. Like, I don't know. I just I felt so like just going from my hotel to this dumb training at this whatever, you know, office space. It was like six blocks away. Like mm-hmm. it, it didn't matter what time of day I like. I think one time I went over because there was a CVS, you know no plug intended <laughs> right <So, laughs> yeah. it was open till one and i'm like i want to go get you know the coke or whatever and it's like even at like 12 30 like it's just a sea of people like and they're just super fast going back and forth they're on their phones and they're dressed in suits and stuff and and just you know like the hustle and bustle and just the non-stop of like the city just doesn't just just constantly in motion i don't know it made me feel like really really small and unimportant i don't know which you, you got to get that out of your head quickly because it leads to negative thoughts you know but i don't know it's just like i just felt that way i was just like man it's just just a sea of like of people just continually moving down here and it's like it's never stops and it's like is anybody really doing anything of any importance like does anybody even give a shit about anything or like would you just completely run over the person next to you to get to where you're going because you don't care yeah so <laughs> exactly. i don't know this this this, this kind of sort of the chaos of that whole thing reminds me of like sort of the crux of some of the stuff in this song. Okay. Uh, any, any musical thoughts about this considering this is for a rush song. It's, it's very long. Just love the, love the guitar riffs, man. I mean, it's just super cool. And I, I'm on record about the, the keyboard intro is so cool. There's, there, there's a really cool, uh, youtube video if you can find it where a guy shows you exactly how to you have to have the right type of keyboards that'll that'll have all those different filters and whatnot to do it but he's like all right when you get to this part go here the dude flip this around this it's kind of <laughs> cool if you can ever find it because i, I kind of tried watching it i used to some buddies of mine had this thing i think i remember telling you about it was called rush carnage where you get like six guys together and you go play a bunch of rush songs but you know most of them are not played all that well <laughs> it's just for fun you get a case of beer and you know but it kind of grew into this thing where you'd have guys would even have their sons coming you know who are older who are into being better than their dads half the time and you got to the point you're playing like 25 rush songs and who's playing what and this that and that was one of the ones they played but 
but That's trying awesome. to get all that beginning stuff together with all those little quirks and stuff is pretty pretty daunting let's just put it that way <laughs> for, for sure all right so that leaves us two songs on the record we have track six up next this is witch hunt um i don't have a lot of notes on this one but i i like i like the uh the, it's it's kind of a cool creepy vibe you know the, the chord changes in the verse uh are very unexpected um it's you know it, you're expecting that you know dc whatever all that kind of stuff like the standard kind of melody but it does it doesn't do that which i thought was really cool it's you know for such a short kind of more simple song you're kind of like wow what is that what is that what is that it's very interesting so i really like that about this song where where do you stand on witch hunt yeah i love the evil sounding guitar riff and just the evil like you hear the mob in the background and you just picture them going up with the like the torches and stuff to like yep and uh this is if so I have the liner notes, and I remember when this came out, I was like, okay, this is part three of Fear. Like, well, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> so this is the third part, I guess, in the trilogy. Um, the Weapon is next, and that's on Signals. And then uh, The Enemy Within is on Grace Under Pressure. Okay. So those three make up what they call the Fear trilogy. So I guess you start with three and go to one is the way they did it, which is a little okay. weird. But they're all sort of based in our fears of each other and our fears of someone else building an army, you know, and, and, you know, and the biggest thing sometimes we fear is actually the enemy within is our, is what we're really scared of is ourselves. We're not scared of the other people. And Neil had a really, a really, I think, perceptive way of kind of per sort of trying to just purvey that thought of, of like, that really does kind of, sometimes it over consumes our lives. Like we're just, just not even so much fear, but worry. And then worry leads to fear. And it's like, it really can consume you to a degree. And I think some of these, these are just metaphors, you know, mm -hmm. like the, the mob is angry. I don't think he's really talking about burning, burning a witch at the stake or whatever, but, but you know, like just political stuff, it's really kind of yeah. timely for what's going on now. Like, you know, somebody wears a Trump shirt, it's like, oh, my God, you're racist, you know, and someone wears a Biden <laughs> thing. It's like, oh, my God, you're trying to take away my guns and and you want to change the sex of all four of my kids. And it's like no one's like has any common sense. No one's in the middle at all anymore. You know, yeah, just, we're just really we really are a nation of fear right now. Yeah. And, and I mean, Getty Lee did an, an interview. It's one of the things I did read uh, in 2011. He did an interview with with our local paper, the Plain Dealer, and he talked about the fact that you know the the lyrics to this song are actually really relevant now, and even even thirty years you know at that point, thirty years past when it was released, you know he said that it's really really relevant to today, um, and I, and I I would agree, you know it, it's again to me, you know back to more the musical aspect of things like it's again with the lyrics it's pretty cool because it, it's one of those things that on the surface you might think it's just about burning witches or whatever if you're not reading into it a lot um because of that intro like you know the the sound effect stuff in the intro with like the mob and all that but it's not and i i you know again i'm probably oversimplifying this stuff but that's just how it comes across to me and i thought that was cool it's you know again a, another example of neil pert just really writing something just super intelligent and just telling well, a great story there's a line in there too. They'd say there's strangest strangeness too dangerous in our theaters and bookstore shelves, you know, and this, 
I don't know if you're familiar with the story about, I wonder how much of this was written towards maybe Getty's um, viewpoint, but his mother actually basically watched his enti her entire family basically go to the gas chamber, you know, and were, like her entire family was wiped out literally. Yep. So it's like, you know, the whole idea of just like get this fear of, well, we're scared of the, you know, we burn all the books. We, completely just try to annihilate and wipe out a race based all based on fear right <laughs> like nothing else and uh, i don't know it's a there's I, i'll have to try to find the youtube interview for you because like i don't know it's like the most powerful like 10 minutes i've ever heard somebody talk about a topic and you're like you can't tell if you want to cry or if you just want to punch some punch a wall or like kick a wall like, <laughs> and you just hear the way this story is laid out and, and like what his mom witnessed and had to go through it's just it's just I just can't even fathom it. Yeah. No, I definitely a terrible story. I'll have to, I'll have to look that up because I, I was not aware of that, but that that's definitely some cool backstory there. Um, 2112-1974 says, those who know what's best for us must rise and save us from ourselves. Great lyric. I, I totally agree with that. Uh, Aiken giving us a show topic. He says, at some point, I'd love to see you guys go track by track, <laughs> score versus exit stage left. <laughs> Oh God! You think John could be objective in something like that? Come on, Aiken. I like Rush, but I, I think you know because I like Dream Theater more. It would be difficult, but I mean, I would do it. It would. It would be our. Right. It would be. I mean, hell, dude. We're, I mean, we're we're gonna do Metallica versus Metallica at some point. We're you know we're doing a Van Halen episode. Like, we can do all kinds of goofy stuff. Aiken Why has not? to come on to himself. Then I want all three of us for that one. Yeah. Okay, but. He, he's gonna root for every single song on exit stage left he wants nothing to do with score all right then you get another rush guy get another dream theater guy on let's, let's see yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well it, there he goes he says he says i aiken says i think john would learn a ton that that's that's probable that's probable so i don't know if we could do a cage match i think it would just be a track by track we'd have to figure that out but um so let's close up the record here of course with the final track vital signs and you were speaking earlier of reggae-ish sounding songs, and this one definitely has that feel to it. Um, this song definitely stands out like a sore thumb against the rest of the material on the album, specifically for that reason. But it, it's a very direct song. It's very simple, but it's a totally different vibe than the rest of the record. And I, I, I don't know why, because it's, it's, it's just repetitious. But for some reason, the way that it ends, you know, the the whole everybody gotta elevate from the no and it like it does that thing like you know it's 16 times or something i really i really dug that and and usually things that just like repeat ad nauseum i get it's like you know four lines done four times each but usually those types of things don't interest me but for some reason this time i kind of dug it i i, I really liked it and maybe it's because, again, I was kind of listening to the lyrics and it was a little different than, you know, what they'd done previously on the record. So it kind of, you know, a, a you know, ninth inning curveball or whatever. Um, but I, I liked it. I thought it was cool. I thought it was an interesting way to close the record. You know, it's something that's totally like it sticks out like a sore thumb. And I, I think it's a very progressive thing to do to end a record like this with a song like that. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I, I love the intro on this. I think this is the first time I'd ever heard like that just panning stereo back and forth, you know, done mm -hmm. to that degree when you're 
listening in headphones it's like really just a super cool listening experience and uh, i totally agree about the end like i don't know it just it just feels like it feels like the last song on on an album and it, it and we're just we're just kind of we're sort of milking this thing but but it also makes sense the way it's the way it's done like that that deviate or deviate and elevate from the norm like i don't know i, I love those lines and, and just like you can just feel them sort of trailing off at the end and you're just like it is a perfect end to album. Yeah, it, it it's weird in that, you know, if they stuck this song second or like fourth, I don't think it would make any sense. And I think they put it perfectly at the end like that. That's exactly where the song should be. Yeah, I, it's. I mean, the whole second side of the record. I mean, Camera Eye, I guess, is kind of obvious because it's a long song and it's very progressive. But I think I think the whole second side of this record is is in interesting one because you know the first side is absolutely iconic you know if you're a rush fan tom sawyer red barchetta yyz and limelight are just you know they're up there for you and you know are 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 the songs on the second half of the record as good i would say no but you still listen to them like all right these are great even though you had that incredible stuff that came after you know came before it it still stands up to it you know, I think I think if you put you know the those three final songs, Camera Eye, Witch Hunt, and Vital Signs, on pretty much any other record, they might be standout tracks. You know that that's kind of how it seems to be, and solely because of the quality of the first four. And you know, I could be talking up my ass because again, I'm not overly familiar with Rush at this point, but I think they're great songs, and they hold up well against the other stuff, which is you know pretty much regarded as just absolutely classic Rush material. Yeah, I don't. Vital Signs is another one. I don't think they played hardly too often. I was lucky, and I let's. I think I saw Rush three times. Um, I'm not sure which show it was, but I was lucky enough to get Witch Hunt on one of those shows, and I was like, oh my god, I couldn't but not believe I was getting to hear that song. Right. Um, that was like very very cool and and unexpected. But yeah, I don't think Vital Signs ever gets got played too much I, I could be wrong if you go look at some set list but i'm fairly certain on that one but uh yeah, yeah i mean just you know like you said there's a little bit of that reggae in there that's like to some of the up picks and stuff and there's just clean guitar parts coming in that you know just real quick stop start things and and there's there's some definitely some police in there but then it's like you know it's a pretty kind of a rock rock anthem towards the end almost you know like yeah mm-hmm. you know what i mean like and it's it's just hard to build songs that I just love stuff that's dynamic and then that builds towards the end. And I think they just are masterpieces that like all three, all, this whole second side, I feel like has that, you know, has the dynamic to it and, and everything kind of builds to a crescendo at the end of each song. And I don't know, it just, it just works. And like you said, it's, it's totally different than the first side. Like it, almost like if, a, if they didn't have albums back then, they had CDs and it went on if it went to that you'd be like wait what is going on here <laughs> right like it, it would just wouldn't even it but i don't i don't know the way they did it and the way the they placed them on the album and those three are on the second side it just it just makes perfect sense yeah it's it's definitely great um sequencing for sure i would completely agree with you on that 2112 1974 says Neil's drums during that part build and flow and add so much. I think it goes hand in hand with Portnoy and how he builds the beginning to the great debate. That's a very good analogy. 
that is a very good analogy because that's you know obviously two very different songs i mean the great debate is you know a 12 minute monster and you know vital science is like four minutes or something like that but um yeah the technique is definitely there so good call 2112 very nice um yeah so overall man i like i like i've been saying this was a really really cool exercise for me because i went into it being like okay how am i going to feel about this like i get it it's rush's you know most popular record and i knew two of the songs really well and i was familiar with yyz and i you know i knew about the song red barchetta but i surprisingly really really liked it so i give you a lot of credit for bringing this one to the table because this was cool man this was a really cool thing to listen to and i i got a lot out of it and i'm definitely going to go down that rabbit hole and kind of check it out and, and see the ups and downs of the rush catalog so you know thanks for bringing this to the table yeah man I, th I think rush is one of those rare bands too where it's like almost everybody wanted to be the drummer you know which is yeah kind of rare because most people want to get up there and be robert plant you know and look like that and get girls all over you or you know already van halen you know with the cool guitar stuff but like with rush is like i mean obviously you know petrucci's highly influenced and there's there's people that love you know lifeson and gaily and stuff but like you know, going back to like Tom Sawyer, has there ever been a song where it comes to that one part and everybody goes, doom, 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 doom. everybody does every little fill of that drums <laughs> in the air on their hands, you know, like during the concert you know, or when you're in the car, it's like, well, I got to, you know, I mean, it's almost like up there with the Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, you got it when the, the heavy part comes in, you got to do the, the Wayne's World. <laughs> the head banging, like, yeah. Yeah, but it's like that. that you know, it's like everybody wants to be Neil Peart up there and play the drums like that and like just because he's just such revered as a god. And uh, yeah, this was an awesome episode, man. I think, you know, probably of all the bands that we're going to end up doing this with, we already did Queensryche. I think I think Rush is the most, obviously the most, the biggest influence on on probably every single person in that band other than maybe Jordan Rudess. I doubt he cared all that much. Like he probably appreciated them musically i don't know what he got out of them keyboard wise you know but maybe there was something i don't know how to play with your feet yeah, you exactly. got out of <laughs> yeah that's the one area jordan hasn't gotten into yet he's he's going to make an app for an ipad you play with your toes yeah <laughs> it knows it knows to ignore the balls of your feet and, and just only only take the input from the toes great <laughs> that's that's like the next morph that, that was crazy that they just always refused to get a keyboard player like that nah, i got two feet so it's like <laughs> that's the thing like like live they made this much noise like that's it's absolutely fascinating and you know if you're not a musician and you know i'm sure a lot of rush fans obviously are it's like dream theater like if you look around probably like three out of four people at a dream theater show if not more like nine out of ten you know they're musicians you, you really don't find somebody that's like i don't play anything i don't sing but i really like dream theater you know rush is probably the same way but for people that aren't musicians to to do what they do is so difficult you know because doesn't alex lifeson plays some pedals too doesn't he did i did i hear that right uh i don't think so i mean he may here and there i mean let's let's we will full disclosure like when they did stuff like power windows there's you have to track those keyboards you can't play those arpeggiated mm -hmm. lines that are going all throughout but but stuff like almost everything on this uh and signals i believe um up to probably grace under pressure he was able to play either the bass parts with his feet you know or trigger a, a 
you know, a keyboard thing here and there with his feet or play, you know, like play the keyboard with his hand and, and play the bass pedals, those Taurus bass pedals with his feet, you know? Yep. But yeah. I, and sing. At the same time. Yeah. So I don't even, I mean, you, you remember like trying to bass play bass and sing like, it's like, I always <laughs> yeah. thought that was like this ridiculous, like, and this isn't like, you know, this isn't uh what's the dude from Cliff Williams, you know? Yeah. <laughs> this isn't Cliff Williams. No offense to all the Cliff Williams. <laughs> yeah. And I know there's there's the silent mass of you that, that there are in the Ian Bull <laughs> fans too, right? I'm sure I'm sure we have a lot of ACDC and Judas Priest fans tuned into our Dream Theater yeah. podcast talking well, about Rush. Well, we might, but I mean my point <laughs> is like to be able to play all those complex lines while you're singing and come and playing and singing those killer melodies and then like oh let's stop figure out a way to play keyboards too with my feet yeah oh that <laughs> i don't know it's just ridiculous <laughs> yeah so a aiken says that he actually interviewed getty lee in person he says one of my all-time highlights was interviewing getty in person he was really friendly and jokey man <laughs> that's, yeah, that's he... kind of a big one that's kind of a big one yeah, that's that's awesome, man. He's like, I don't know if you noticed, he's I think well maybe they touched on the documentary. He is a massive like baseball fan and he's a yes. huge historian. Like he has a ridiculous collection of signed memorabilia and stuff and uh which I always think it's cool where the guy's like into something else besides music, you know. Yeah. Not well, dude, that's you know, a good a good time to close up on that one because yeah, it, like Rush is incredible and obviously it extends beyond music. So, like, you know, the guy doesn't just know bass. He knows baseball. Get it? See what I did there? Right. Um, that's that's called a terrible segue, kids. But, uh, yeah, this was fun, Brian. Good idea on this one. Like I said, we'll be, we'll be doing more episodes like this. We got to figure out. The Metallica one is what we got to figure out because, you know, do we deep dive a pair of records? Do we do a cage match between two records? Like, we haven't decided, um, you know. Uh, 2112 says great show guys thanks 21 appreciate you man thanks for sticking around the whole time i know it's been a long one we had some technical difficulties but um thank you very much for sticking around and checking out the show we appreciate you very much uh yeah obviously you know we kind of teased it but october 6th we're going to be doing a van halen episode so um my inclination is to do 1984 if you're okay with that because that hey, is the most you are, you are the van halen guru <laughs> expert and uh i was bummed when eddie passed but you took it harder than probably other than his family anyone i know so that that's all you whatever you want to do on that show i'm along for the ride and i'll put in my two cents awesome yeah i think you know i think you know van halen one is the obvious one but for me 1984 was kind of like that turning point for them and a lot of levels and it's also the most influential record of my entire life, so I, I'd kind of like to dig that, dig into that one. So, um, and who's to say we can't do more? I mean, we, like I said, we've done Operation Mindcrime, but Paul Logue wants to talk some Queensrÿche, so we could, you know, we could dig into another Queensrÿche record and stuff like that. But um, yeah, we got we got a lot of cool stuff coming up, man. We're trying to track down John Petrucci since he'll be doing some promo, uh, uh, some press, I should say, for his solo tour. So we're trying to work on getting John on the show. Um, Speaking of, you did not answer my question in my email the other day. Would you like to attend the virtual taste testing for John Petrucci's Rock the Barrel 2 Bourbon next Friday night? Because I can't, I can't log in to do it. I'll be sound checking for a, for a gig. But I can send you the credentials and you could log in and like listen to the Q&A and stuff like that, which I'm, is definitely going to be like, you know, 
music related at some point so yeah originally i thought there was a chance i was going to be out of town but i should be around for that so okay yeah put me like 75 25 for sure we'll talk about it after the show okay i, yeah, I think you i think you cool. kind of owe me considering you blew off the jordan rudis show <laughs> so <laughs> got to do something I, really for us. I didn't go to a show that you didn't go to either man because i wasn't able to go and, and you, you it was perfect sh- perfect show content and you blew it <laughs> so but uh so yeah so so we'll be doing that um you know obviously we actually have a show the night after the cleveland john petrucci date so that'll be kind of cool uh october 6th like we said is going to be a van halen episode and do not forget uh friday december 30th is going to be our next fan hangout so if you would like to be a co-host of the show just shoot us an email at talking into infinity at gmail.com and uh we definitely like to get you guys on camera with Brian and I co-hosting the show. And we talk about anything. It's it's obviously dream theater centric, but we end up talking about anything that comes up and we just have some drinks and celebrate the holidays and celebrate music. And so that'll be very cool. That is Friday, December 30th. But until then, we are back here uh, right here on talking into infinity.com on Facebook, YouTube, talking into infinity.com and the CMS network.com in two weeks. It will be Thursday august 25th at 7 30 p.m eastern standard time so brian again great idea for the show tonight man that was a blast thanks for bringing this to the table thanks man yeah this was a lot of fun and uh it forced me to like you know loosen that tight wallet of mine and actually spend some money and get some cool stuff and uh <laughs> you know how i am with money <laughs> yeah i wasn't gonna bring that up but <laughs> yeah like, yeah i wonder if you can find it for three dollars somewhere <laughs> yeah. damn ebay <laughs> ebay doesn't have it for anything less than 20 <laughs> yeah no that was that was cool i i so actually i made a couple purchases so i got this i uh of course i got the labrie that came so i got that and i got the michael romeo so i think this is like a cool start to my new my second uh venture into vinyl but yeah a lot of fun and uh you know, and guys, hit us up on all of our social medias. And if you got, like, you know, not even kidding, and this isn't so we don't have to do work, but if you got show topics, you know, shoot them over to us. We're more than happy to hear about them. Or if you've got guest ideas or, or whatever, you know, or if you know people that, that are in that, you know, hit us up. We'd love to, you know, kind of explore anything and all. Because like we said a million times, this is for this is for everybody else. You know, we do this out of, cause we love it, but we also want stuff that people want to hear and we want to get people involved as much as we can. And, uh, it's crazy. You know, like I miss, I miss, I miss a show and I'm like, there's times when I'm like, I don't know if I have anything to say and I'm kind of like nervous. And then, but you go a month without being on and you're, I'm just jonesing to get back on, you know? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so it's like, it was, it was great. And, uh, once again, thanks to Adam for filling in last time. And, uh, we'll see you guys again in two weeks, I guess. All right, guys, that'll about wrap it up. So for he is Brian. I am your host, John. And until next time, guys, carpe diem. <laughs>